you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Hello listeners, tonight will be the last part of Lost Hearts by M.R. James. Then on December 29th, we are going to have a very special and unique interview episode that I'm really excited for you all to hear. And that's going to be our last episode of 2020. Thank you all so much for all of your support this past year. It's really meant so much and the podcast has grown to something that I didn't even think possible. So Thank you so much. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this next part of Lost Hearts by M.R. James. Without further ado, let's begin. On the following evening, the usual duet of Stephen and Mrs. Bunch was augmented by the sudden arrival of Mr. Parks, the butler, who, as a rule, kept himself rather to himself in his own pantry. He did not see that Stephen was there. He was, moreover, flustered and less slow of speech than was his wont. Master may get up his own wine if he likes of an evening, was his first remark. Either I do it in the daytime or not at all, Mrs. Bunch. I don't know what it may be, very like it's the rats, or the wind got into the cellars. But I'm not so young as I was, and I can't go through with it as I have done. Well, Mr. Parks, you know it is a surprising place for the rats, is the hall. I'm not denying that, Mrs. Bunch. And, to be sure, many a time I've heard the tale from the men in the shipyards about the rat that could speak. I never laid no confidence in that before. But tonight, if I demeaned myself to lay my ear to the floor of the further bin, I could pretty much have heard what they was saying. Oh, there, Mr. Parks, I've no patience with your fancies. Rats talking in the wine cellar, indeed. Well, Mrs. Bunch, I've no wish to argue with you. All I say is, if you choose to go to the far bin and lay your ear to the door, you may prove my words this minute. What nonsense you do talk, Mr. Parks. Not fit for children to listen to. Why, you'll be frightening Master Stephen there out of his wits. What? Master Stephen, said Parks awaking to the consciousness of the boy's presence. Master Stephen knows well enough when I am a-playing a joke with you, Mrs. Bunch. In fact, Master Stephen knew much too well to suppose that Mr. Parks had, in the first instance, intended a joke. He was interested, not altogether pleasantly, in the situation, but all his questions were unsuccessful in inducing the butler to give any more detailed account of his experiences in the wine cellar. We have now arrived at March 24th, 1812. It was a day of curious experiences for Stephen. A windy, noisy day, 
which filled the house and the gardens with a restless impression. As Stephen stood by the fence of the grounds and looked out into the park, he felt as if an endless procession of unseen people were sweeping past him on the wind, borne on resistlessly and aimlessly, vainly striving to stop themselves, to catch at something that might arrest their flight and bring them once again into contact with the living world of which they had formed a part. After luncheon that day, Mr. Abney said, Stephen, my boy, do you think you could manage to come to me tonight as late as 11 o'clock in my study? I shall be busy until that time, and I wish to show you something connected with your future life which it is most important that you should know. You are not to mention this matter to Mrs. Bunch, nor to anyone else in the house, and you had better go to your room at the usual time. Here was a new excitement added to life. Stephen eagerly grasped at the opportunity of sitting up until eleven o'clock. He looked in at the library door on his way upstairs that evening, and saw a brazier, which he had often noticed in the corner of the room, moved out before the fire. An old silver gilt cup stood on the table, filled with red wine, and some written sheets of paper lay near it. Mr. Abney was sprinkling some incense on the brazier from a round silver box as Stephen passed, but did not seem to notice his step. The wind had fallen, and there was a still night and a full moon. At about ten o'clock, Stephen was standing at the open window of his bedroom, looking out over the country. Still as the night was, the mysterious population of the distant moonlit woods was not yet lulled to rest. From time to time, strange cries as of lost and despairing wanderers sounded from across the mirror. They might be the notes of owls or water birds, yet they did not quite resemble either sound. Were not they coming nearer? Now they sounded from the nearer side of the water, and in a few moments they seemed to be floating about among the shrubberies. Then they ceased. But just as Stephen was thinking of shutting the window, and resuming his reading of Robinson Crusoe, he caught sight of two figures standing on the graveled terrace that ran along the garden side of the hall. The figures of a boy and girl, as it seemed. They stood side by side, looking up at the windows. Something in the form of the girl recalled irresistibly his dream of the figure in the bath, the boy inspired him with more acute fear. Whilst the girl stood still, half smiling with her hands clasped over her heart, the boy, a thin shape, with black hair and ragged clothing, raised his arms in the air with an appearance of menace and of unappeasable hunger and longing. The moon shone upon his almost transparent hands, and Stephen saw that the nails were fearfully long and that the light shone through them. 
As he stood with his arms thus raised, he disclosed a terrifying spectacle. On the left side of his chest, there opened a black and gaping rent, and there fell upon Stephen's brain, rather than upon his ear, the impression of one of those hungry and desolate cries that he had heard resounding over the woods of Aswerby all that evening. In another moment, this dreadful pair had moved swiftly and noiselessly over the dry gravel, and he saw them no more. Inexpressibly frightened as he was, he determined to take his candle and go down to Mr. Abney's study, for the hour appointed for their meeting was near at hand. The study, or library, opened out of the front hall on one side, and Stephen, urged on by his terrors, did not take long in getting there. To effect an entrance was not so easy. It was not locked, he felt sure, for the key was on the outside of the door as usual. His repeated knocks produced no answer. Mr. Abney was engaged. He was speaking. What? Why did he try to cry out? And why was the cry choked in his throat? Had he too seen the mysterious children? But now everything was quiet, and the door yielded to Stephen's terrified and frantic pushing. When the body of a missing township trustee is found floating in a lake near an abandoned amusement park in a small Ohio town, the mysterious circumstances surrounding his disappearance and the strange autopsy findings raise more questions than they answer. In this season of Invisible Ships, we take on one of Northeast Ohio's most intriguing cold cases. We even have an exclusive interview with Brian Macron's widow, Victoria Macron, who believes that her husband was murdered. You do not want to miss her story. We're also going to talk to a former federal investigator who is now actively working this case, and they say they are close to breaking it open. There's a very good chance that the killers are listening in, too. So join us on Invisible Ships Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the table in Mr. Abney's study, certain papers were found, which explained the situation to Stephen Elliott when he was of an age to understand them. The most important sentences were as follows. It was a belief very strongly and generally held by the ancients, of whose wisdom in these matters I have had such experience as induces me to place confidence in their assertions, that by enacting certain processes, which to us moderns have something of a barbaric complexion, a very remarkable enlightenment of the spiritual faculties in man may be attained. That, for example, by absorbing the personalities of a certain number of his fellow creatures, an individual may gain a complete ascendancy over those orders of spiritual beings which control the elemental forces of our universe. It is recorded of Simon Magus that he was able to fly in the air, to become invisible, or to assume any form he pleased, 
by the agency of the soul of a boy whom, to use the libelous phrase employed by the author of the Clementine Recognitions, he had murdered. I find it set down, moreover, with considerable detail in the writings of Hermes Trismegistus, that similar happy results may be produced by the absorption of the hearts of not less than three human beings below the age of 21 years. To the testing of the truth of this receipt, I have devoted the greater part of the last 20 years, selecting as the corpora vilia of my experiment such persons as could conveniently be removed without occasioning a sensible gap in society. The first step I effected by the removal of one Phoebe Stanley, a girl of gypsy extraction, on March 24, 1792. The second by the removal of a wandering Italian lad named Giovanni Paoli on the night of March 23, 1805. The final victim, to employ a word repugnant in the highest degree to my feelings, must be my cousin, Stephen Elliot. His day must be this March 24, 1812. The best means of effecting the required absorption is to remove the heart from the living subject, to reduce it to ashes, and to mingle them with about a pint of some red wine, preferably port. The remains of the first two subjects, at least, it will be well to conceal. A disused bathroom or wine cellar will be found convenient for such a purpose. Some annoyance may be experienced from the psychic portion of the subjects, which popular language dignifies with the name of ghosts. But the man of philosophic temperament, to whom alone the experiment is appropriate, will be little prone to attach importance to the feeble efforts of these beings to wreak their vengeance on him. I contemplate with the liveliest satisfaction the enlarged and emancipated existence which the experiment, if successful, will confer on me, not only placing me beyond the reach of human justice, so-called, but eliminating to a great extent the prospect of death itself. Mr. Abney was found in his chair, his head thrown back, his face stamped with an expression of rage, fright, and mortal pain. In his left side was a terrible lacerated wound exposing the heart. There was no blood on his hands, and a long knife that lay on the table was perfectly clean. A savage wild cat might have inflicted the injuries. The window of the study was open, and it was the opinion of the coroner that Mr. Abney had met his death by the agency of some wild creature. But Stephen Elliot's study of the papers I have quoted led him to a very different conclusion.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.